Grace and peace are yours from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, My family is one of those families that loves the show Friends, uh, probably to an extreme amount. Uh, We're one of those families that if there's nothing else on TV, we'll go back and watch reruns of Friends over and over again. Uh, We know every episode. We can quote just about every episode. Uh, It's actually rather disturbing how well we know the show. But I bring that up because uh, there's a character in Friends named Ross. And at the end of season four, beginning of season five, uh, Ross displays characteristics that we all display. And so I want to tell you about it. The end of season four, Ross is standing at the altar and he's about to get married uh, to a, a woman named Emily. And it comes time for Ross to recite his vows and he says, he's supposed to say, I take thee, Emily, to be my wife. But what Ross actually says is, I take thee, Rachel, to be my wife. Now, as a pastor, I do some marriage counseling, and it's never my advice to call your spouse by someone else's name. That generally hurts the relationship and doesn't help. Uh, And that's what happens with Ross. They end up still getting married, but what happens is Emily runs away, and she doesn't want to talk to Ross, and she doesn't want to see Ross. And so the beginning of, of season five, the first couple episodes, Ross is trying to get a hold of her. And finally... Emily calls him, and he says, Emily, what do I have to do to show you that I love you? What do I have to do to prove my love for you? And what does she tell him? First, she says, move to London, because that's where she's from. And second, she says, never see Rachel again. That's what you have to do to prove your love to me. And Ross says, I can't do it. And the relationship crumbles. And they end up getting divorced. What must I do? I wonder if you've ever said that when it comes to your relationship with God. What must I do, God, to know that you love me? What must I do, God, to make up for my past mistakes? What must I do, God... To know that you forgive me. What must I do to get rid of my guilt? What must I do to be saved, God? Today, we're looking at a section of Scripture, Acts chapter 16, where a man asks that exact same question. What must I do? And as we start this brand new sermon series... Uh, These core values aren't necessarily in order, except for this one. Because this, we thrive on more joy than guilt is what we are all about. This is what powers us. This is what powers the gospel. This is what powers God's word. More joy than guilt. And we're going to find out why in just a minute. Acts chapter 16 uh, is the sequel to the book of Luke. You've got those biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke, a doctor, wrote the book of Luke. And then he also wrote uh, the book of Acts, which follows the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, So what you have is Luke follows Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in the book of Luke. And then the book of Acts, he continues after Jesus ascends into heaven with the first century Christian church. And in Acts chapter 16, Luke is following a man named Paul and his friend Silas. 
And they were the greatest missionaries of all time. What they did was they started in Jerusalem and they spread the Christian church to the ends of the earth of the known time. And in Acts chapter 16, he's in a city called Philippi, which is right up here. You can see Jerusalem is down here. Paul is actually from Tarsus. He's Saul from Tarsus. Uh, but he's, he ends up changing his name to Paul when he becomes a Christian. And he goes from Jerusalem all the way up through Colossae, Galatia, Ephesus. These are all letters in the New Testament. Uh, and then here's Philippi. And so in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas come to this city. Uh, and they're looking to establish the Christian church, spread the message of Jesus, uh, and, and build a church. As soon as they enter this city, they run into a slave girl uh, who was demon-possessed. And what this demon allowed her to do was to foretell future events. Uh, and, and so, guess what her masters did? Used her for money. They would set her up on a corner and say, hey, come and get your fortune told. Your, your future can be told by this girl. You'd come pay a big amount of money, she'd tell your future, and you'd go on. And so as soon as they enter Philippi, this slave girl starts following them and starts shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God, here to tell you how to be saved. Which at first, you wonder... Demon, why are you doing that? That makes no sense, right? This is what we want people to know. But imagine if a foreigner, because that's what Paul is in Philippi, imagine if a foreigner came to Liberty Hill and is walking down the streets and a, a girl is following that person saying, this person's a servant of the Most High God telling you the way to be saved. You think you're going to stop and talk to that person? <laughs> Not at all, right? Uh, you're going to actively avoid that person. And so for a couple of days... People are actively avoiding Paul because of this slave girl. So finally, Paul turns and says, I command you in the name of Jesus, get out of her. And the demon left immediately. Good for the girl, bad for the masters, right? No more money. No more future events being told. And so these masters, these men, grab Paul and Silas, bring them into the middle of the city and say, these men are teaching things foreign to Roman culture. And they start to get the crowd involved. And this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 16. The crowd joined in with these men, these masters, uh, in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So without a trial, without being questioned, without anything, uh, the magistrates, the leaders of the town, come, and they decide they're going to shame Paul and Silas and beat them. So they strip them naked in the middle of the city and then beat them with rods called flogging. Flogging was being whipped with these rods 39 times. And that's what happened. They get beat 39 times, and then they get handed over to the jailer to be put in maximum security, uh, in the maximum security cell, and put in stocks. All, why? All because they're spreading the message of Jesus. All because they show love to this slave girl, drove a demon out of her to save her, and this is how they're getting repaid. How would you respond if you're in the stocks 
in the inner cell, treated like a prisoner, your back is tore open from being whipped, how would you be responding sitting there? Probably cramping too because of the stocks. Would you be a little upset, a little bitter? Asking God, why did you let this happen to me? I'm, I'm here serving you. Here's how Paul and Silas responded. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. They're still filled with joy. They're in, in the prison with their backs torn open, put in stocks, probably cramping, because that was the purpose of the stocks, was to make it so that you suffered even more. And here they are in the middle of the night because they can't sleep, because they're uncomfortable, praying and singing praises to God. Unbelievable. This is about midnight. It's in the dark. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We are all here! The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So it's about midnight, Paul and Silas singing praises to God, praying. And an earthquake happens, all the doors fly open, all the chains on the prisoners fall off. The jailer, who's sleeping because it's midnight, uh, wakes up and sees the doors of the prisons open. And he draws his sword to kill himself. Why? Because he knew what Roman custom and laws were. And that is if a prisoner escaped, the jailer on duty received the punishment of all of the prisoners that escaped. And so he figured, it's better to just go right now than go through all of that. And so he draws his sword to kill himself and Paul says, don't harm yourself! We're all here. Jailer calls for lights because it's dark, runs in, falls trembling at their feet and says, what must I do to be saved? The jailer realized that his relationship, first of all, with Paul and Silas was probably not good. Uh, A jailer handling criminals that are getting put in the maximum security cell probably didn't handle them the best, especially with open wounds on their back. So something wasn't right with them. Their relationship was bad. But also... He's asking, what must I do to be saved? He knows something's not right here. He needs to do something to fix it. What do you think he expected uh, Paul and Silas to say? Let me out of jail. Let me out of jail. Yeah, let us out of jail. Then you'll be saved. Then I'll put a a, a good prayer in for you with God. Maybe they thought, uh, maybe he thought they would say, hey, you need a Start watching your language. Because as a jailer, your language is filthy. Maybe he thought they'd say, hey, you need to be in in our church. You need to come to our church every Sunday, and then you'll be saved. Maybe he thought, you need to change your attitude. You need to change the way you treat people. All the jailer wanted to know was, what. tell me how to think, how to act. Tell me what to do that I might be saved. But here's your first point this morning. Guilt asks, what must I do? 
It's guilt that asks that question. You see, the jailer knew he did something wrong. He knew it. And he's asking, what do I have to do to fix it? I unfortunately asked myself this question not too long ago. Uh, During Anne's first trimester, she was uh, pretty sick. Uh, Not throwing up. She she was just feeling nauseous. And uh, especially with like hot meats, that really made her feel bad. And so it was a, a Tuesday night. And I went to the refrigerator. I'll never forget it. I went to the refrigerator. Ann said she wasn't hungry. Uh, so I was going to heat up the leftover beef that we had on Sunday, which she really enjoyed. So I, I'm fixing my plate, and I'm getting ready to put it in the microwave. And Ann's sitting on the couch, and she says, Are you heating up that beef? I said, Yeah. And she said, Ugh, that's making me sick. So I'm sorry. Beep, beep, beep. Start. <laughs> uh, I take it out after it, it's done, uh, and I'm getting everything ready, and Ann says, oh, just that smell is making me sick. Oh, I'm sorry. And I take my plate, and I go sit down on the couch on the other end from her. I'm eating, and all of a sudden I realize she's looking at me, and I said, what? And she goes, just looking at that is making me sick. And so the nice guy that I am, I turn my back so she can't see it. And I cut off a piece and I take a bite and I said, man, this beef is good. And she said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? She goes, how many times do I have to tell you that that beef is making me sick? Can you please go in a different room? And I said, oh, I'm sorry, but do you think you're overreacting a little bit? Uh, she didn't say anything. She got up and went to the bedroom. Now, I may not have picked up on the fact that she didn't want me eating the beef, but I definitely knew that something was not right in our relationship. And so I sat there thinking to myself, what do I got to do to fix this? I need to do something. And so what I do, I quickly ate, washed my plate, sprayed some air freshener, got her a glass of water, went into the bedroom, asked if she needed anything. Uh, I might have tried to give her a back massage or something that she didn't want, uh, but I tried to fix it. What must I do to fix it? We do that with God too, don't we? We know something isn't right. And so what do I have to do to fix it? Tell me, God, what do I have to do? Do I have to be in church every Sunday? Do I have to change the way I think? Do I have to change my attitude? Do I have to change the way I talk? Do do I need to change the way I parent? Do, Do I have to be more involved? Do I have to be less involved? What do I have to do, Lord? Tell me. Tell me what do I have to do. And so what do we do? We start changing. We change the way we think. We change the way we talk. We change the way we live, thinking that it's making us right with God. And you know what? For a little while, it does make us feel better, right? Living for God does make us feel better. And yet, we know that something still isn't right. And how do we know it? Because guilt still comes to us. 
we still have those guilty feelings. We still have those memories that cause extreme regret and guilt. We have those times that we cannot remember or cannot forget burned into our brain. And every time we think about it, we have extreme guilt. And we're back to realizing something isn't right. And so we try to deal with our guilt in one of two ways. One, we try to repress it. We try to push it down and get it away from us. We try to push it down, not think about it, and fill our lives with doing good things in hopes that will make us forget. But the thing about repressed guilt is that it never stays down, does it? It always finds a way to come back up. It comes back up in health problems. Guilt can cause ulcers. It can cause headaches. It can cause high blood pressure. Guilt comes back up through bitterness. We get bitter toward God because He doesn't make it easier for me to forget this. Because He doesn't make it easy for me to make my relationship with Him good. Because He won't just tell me what I have to do. We get bitter towards others. Because if they just wouldn't be so uh, easily offended then I wouldn't have to be going to apologize. I wouldn't be feeling guilty about this. And so we get bitter towards them. Repressed guilt never stays down. And no matter what we do, we can't take that repressed guilt away. We can't replace the guilt with enough good things. And so then what's the next way that we deal with it? Expressed guilt. We walk around and we say things like, oh, I'm just a really bad husband. Uh, I can't believe I heated up the beef and I'm just a bad husband. I'm, I'm a failure of a mom. I'm a failure of a dad. I, I'm, I'm a, a bad son, a bad daughter, bad student, bad friend. Uh, I'm just not keeping in touch. I'm sorry. And what are we doing? What are we hoping to do with that? We're hoping that somebody says, No, you're not. You're a great mom. You're a great dad. You're, you're great. No, no problems. And we hope that somebody says that because what happens? Our guilt goes away for a little bit. We feel better. But then a little while later, what pops back up? Guilt. Our actions can't take away guilt. What must we do? We realize we really can't do anything. Actions can't get rid of guilt. This jailer is wondering, what must I do? His guilt is asking that. Here's what Paul says. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Paul says, you want to know what you have to do? You want to know what you have to do, jailer? Nothing. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Trust that it's been done for you. And then he explained 
the word of God to him. And the jailer brings Paul and Silas out of jail, brings them into his own house at 12.30 in the morning, makes them a meal, gets his whole household up, and all of them get baptized. Because they came to believe in the Lord. And look it, he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. Here's your last point. The answer is not do, but trust. The answer is not do, but trust. What must I do? The jailer wanted to know. And Paul says, nothing. We know something's not right with our relationship with God. We know that something needs to be done. And God says, you're right. Something does need to be done. But you can't do it. You can't do it. It's your fault. It's our fault. But you can't fix the problem. God says, I need to fix the problem. Isn't that something? We screw up, and God says, let me fix it. And God says, I'm going to send Jesus, my only son, to live perfectly for you and die on the cross. And it's at that cross of Christ where God announces to you that your sins are forgiven, that you are blameless, that you are guiltless before God. You are holy in His sight because all of your sins have been paid for in full. And there, God says, you don't need to do anything. It's been done for you. Trust it. Believe it. And when you do, you have more joy than guilt. This is what we are all about here at Divine Savior, right? Because this is what God's Word is all about. It is all about having more joy because your sins are forgiven. It's been done, taken care of. This is why we get together every Sunday to worship Jesus. Because every Sunday we get to hear that our sins are forgiven. That we are perfect in God's sight, holy, blameless, guiltless. The world has enough guilt. The world heaps on guilt after guilt on us. Here we come to hear that Jesus has taken that all away and be built up with other people in that same message. Because during the week, who wants to steal your joy? The devil, right? And the devil's very good at stealing our joy. He brings us guilt and he makes guilt whisper into our ear. And so it's very important that we remain in God's Word to be built up in the joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven. Guilt is going to come to you this week. And it's going to whisper to you different lies. And it's important that we respond with God's Word. And so let me give you a few examples. You might want to get your pen ready because I'm going to give you some references for God's Word uh, that I want you to memorize and learn. Here's what guilt's going to say to you this week. Guilt says, dwell on the past. Remember that horrible sin you committed? Remember what you did? Remember how embarrassing that was? Remember how guilty you should be feeling right now? Dwell on that. Here's what God says. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. God says, I have forgiven your sins. I don't remember them at all. Not because he's a forgetful guy, but because he chooses to forget. He chooses not to remember. Because when God forgives, it's done. It's over. There's no going back to that moment. Because it's done and forgiven. 
That's what he says to you. Guilt's going to say, how could God love me after what I did? I can barely love myself. How could God love me? Here's what God says in Romans 8.39. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus died for the world. Are you part of the world? Yes. Jesus died for you. And because of Jesus, through, the, through Christ Jesus our Lord, the love of God will never be separated from you. It won't be. No matter what you did in the past, God's love will never be taken from you. This is God's promise. Guilt's going to say, You're guilty. You are guilty. You deserve to be condemned. You deserve to be judged. What does God say in Romans 8.33? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who's on the judgment seat? God is. And He says, Satan, guilt, who can bring any charges against my people? I'm the one who declares guilty. I'm the one who declares innocent. And I've declared my people justified. Declared not guilty. Because of Jesus. God says, I'm the, I'm the judge, and I declare my people innocent. Good luck, Satan. Guilt's going to say to you this week, you must do something to get right with God. What can you do? You have to fix this. What does God say? From the cross. It is finished. Your salvation is complete. Your guilt is gone. Guilt's going to say to you, you're a failure. You are a failure. God says to you, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Romans 8.37 We are more than conquerors. We have conquered death. We have conquered guilt. We have conquered this world. We have conquered Satan because Jesus has conquered everything. Finally, guilt says God can forgive some sins, but not that really big sin. Sure, yeah, this applies to you in some aspects of your life, but that really big sin, God can't forgive. What does God say in 1 John? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. All of your sins, no matter how big, no matter how small, they are forgiven by God. Your guilt is completely removed because of Jesus. This is a joy that we have. So to close, who do you listen to? Guilt or God? See, when we listen to God's Word, when we listen to what He says to us, our guilt is completely removed. And we are filled with joy. Joy knowing that our sins are forgiven, our guilt is removed. This is what we thrive on, because this is what God's Word says. We thrive on more joy than guilt. May God be with you this week as He fills you with the joy that only His Word can. Amen. Let's pray.
Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us joy and making your joy complete in our lives by forgiving us our sins and filling us with the joy of heaven, knowing that our guilt is removed and that we have a great relationship with you because of Jesus. Be with us this week. Keep Satan and guilt away from us that we may uh, always have the joy of knowing your love and your forgiveness. Amen.